Hello, welcome to another episode of Kitchfork. Uh, I just wanted to put another disclaimer that my audio is especially bad in this episode, and I'm not even really sure why. Uh, it's kind of annoying. I know all our worst enemies are going to listen, and they're going to be like, wow, amateur hour. So, you know, give us a chance. You know, we're not fully amateur hour. <laughs> In any case, uh, on with the show. Welcome to the Kitchfork Podcast, an anti-nostalgic look back on the indie music and culture of the aughts. My name is Max Cohen. And I'm Liz Ryerson. And today we're taking another break, well, a different kind of break. Last week, or last episode, we talked about a non-indie musician from the non-aughts. And this week, we're not talking about a single musician at all. We're going to do a bit of a a bit of a talk show grab bag. Yeah, I think it's only right and natural to, to quote the frogs. <laughs> to quote the frogs, yes. <laughs> that we do an episode like this. On this episode about an EP called Gay. Yes. Right to quote the frogs. Yeah, exactly. Um so yeah, we're um we're talking about uh the EP Gay mm-hmm. <laughs> with a question mark. By 12 Rods, uh, which is mostly notable but for being like the first thing that Pitchfork gave a 10 to. Um, mm. And and back in the, uh, the late 90s and early 2000s, they were handing out those 10s like, you know, hotcakes. Uh, so quite, yeah. a, quite a few albums got them. But uh, And along with that, as a further overview of exactly the culture and opinion of the time of uh, Pitchfork. We're also going to be talking about an article David Cross wrote um, back in the day for Pitchfork a little bit after they slammed one of his comedy albums where he, in his delightfully pissy way, just lists all, a bunch of terrible Pitchfork album uh, review quotes. Um, yep. Thereby being a sort of, in my opinion, kind of Rosetta Stone for the terrible writing styles of Pitchfork in that era. It also goes back to the intersection between alt comedy of the 2000s and Pitchfork. Something right. very deep. Uh, yeah. I don't ever think we actually talked about the other music um, thing by Human Giant. It's something that I like intend to quote. I mean, I, I like used a clip from it at the, at it's the end icon, of the It's our icon, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> the icon is like one of the actors. I don't actually know the name of that guy from that sketch like putting his ear up to uh, a record <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i mean if you haven't seen the other uh, uh, human giant uh, other music sketch like it's it's hilarious it just rips on tapes and tapes a lot in pitchfork in a way that 
was extremely funny at the time, and I oh, think it's still kind of funny. That's the no. You're thinking of the Clell Tickle one. Oh yeah, you're right, Clell Tickle. Right, we're right. The yeah. Human <laughs> Giant one has like the the thing that I was going to reference in our Interpol episode. I might as well say it just before we get into talking about Twelve Rods because we don't actually have a lot to say about Twelve Rods. Spoiler. Yeah. Um. Uh, he says something like, uh, we'll put in a clip, but he says something like, uh... Speaking of candy, they ever tell you about the time I went trick-or-treating with Carlos D? No, I, I don't know you, sir. That's awesome. We did a mail last year. Oh, Halloween's in October. <laughs> Not when you're Carlos D. That guy doesn't play by the rules. Yeah, he celebrates Black History Month in November. I a lot of black people are going to start doing that, too. He's their leader. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put a clip in. We'll put a clip Human in. Giants underrated. Everybody should go watch that series. Yeah, but anyway, um, so we're going to talk about Twelve Rods, a band from Minneapolis who got the Pitchfork faith, faithful, uh, the website that barely existed at that point, uh, so excited and so worked up. And you know, why don't we just start with the review? Uh, mm. instead of doing the usual because it's super short. Uh, is that cool with you? Can I read a bit of it? Please, please do. And as with any, a lot of these old reviews, um, when Pitchfork was bought out by... Uh, uh, what is the name of them? Condé Nast. Condé Nast, thank you. Um, mm-hmm. They completely scrubbed the internet of these reviews. Um, mm-hmm. So... You know, robbing us of such uh, wonderful prose. But thankfully, the Internet Archive is here for us. Um, yeah, it has plenty of plenty of cachet on Pitchfork. So, I've praised this one before in Three Blocks from Groove Street. But damn it, if all if Mr. Schreiber doesn't want an official review. This is from Jason Josephs in May 1st, 1996. Uh, glad to oblige because it means I get to listen to it again and again and again. Hell, I listened to Gay three times yesterday and didn't get tired of it. In fact, to tire of this thoroughly wonderful disc is going to take a while. Twelve Rods is like everything and nothing. <laughs> Occupying a special nook in my head where music is wonderful and I believe in superheroes again. Oh my God. Six songs, not one wasted moment. Things open with the Death March Pummel of Red, a song that has the musical drive of an early killing joke with heartfelt yearning lyrics. I would say easily the best song on that EP, personally. Oh, oh, this this is coming from Liz, personally. Yeah. Yes, I would agree on that, for um, sure. Uh, going back to the review, I've read a couple of reviews comparing lead singer Ryan Olcott to Ozzy Osbourne. He sounds exactly like the guy from Built to Spill in their first couple of albums. Ugh. And all right, there's some similarity, but he isn't. Ex- this isn't exactly Perry Mason. From Red, we ease into make-out music, a wistful recollection of hometown boredom and school bullies that takes the lyrical tune, turn through an old Ziggy cartoon. No, you read that right. Before plowing into awesome lyrics, I realize what I gotta do Oh my God! He's referencing this line, "Nanny, nanny, boo, boo." Nanny, oh no! Nanny. He referenced that. <laughs> the, the worst part of this entire EP. The, the one time a lyric leaped out at me was when it was that, and it was the worst thing I'd ever heard. 
I'll skip this this third paragraph, but the end part is funny. Um, he says, uh, friend is dreamy and lonely, perfect for those rainy days and sunsets. And the final track, Revolute, it's, it's 10 minutes of kicking Getty Lees in the balls and living to tell the tale. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's so read, So I, you know, reading that review a while back and then like listening to this album feels to me like this one time when I was on a, a plane ride to Italy and I took a bunch of Ambien and watched Juno. Oh, and I God. thought Juno was the greatest movie I'd ever seen in my life in that moment. I thought it needed all the Oscars. It was a perfect 10. It made other movies look like shit. This was an incredible movie. Everybody needed to watch Juno. Juno, a movie that when I saw Sober, I thought was one of the worst things I'd ever seen. Just completely insufferable and dull. Weirdly um, relevant because it's kind of an anti-abortion movie. <laughs> oh, God. We'll get into that later. <laughs> um, but but it feels like it feels like this. It feels like somebody who was like really like high in a moment of experiencing this music and then never got away from that feeling because the album itself is just like any half-assed like indie post-hardcore band from that era you know this this is this is the kind of thing the raymond break would would put out well, like it's not exciting <laughs> yeah well you remember on the broken social scene episode when we talked about the band had this thing that they called do in the 95 where they'd write mm -hmm. songs in the style of 95 like this is 12 rods is doing the 95 on this <laughs> yeah. i mean it's it's from 96 but it came out at the beginning of 96 so it's this is basically what doing the 95 is in so many different ways um let me just finish the, <laughs> the <laughs> to to um to echo your point this is the what the end of this review says look i'm not going to lie to you i hear a lot of mediocrity from bands just starting out this is 12 rods first release and if it's any sign of things to come, I have faith in the future of music. Look for their full length in early 98. So there you go. And their full length, by the way, they gave a 9.7 only to turn in 98, only to turn around and give them a 2.0 in 2000s with their album um, Separation Anxieties. So, yeah, which is not a good album. So they're, they're not wrong. <laughs> Produced by Todd Rundgren. Yeah, which is just, I, that's not what I would have pictured as a, as a pairing. Um, so just to start out, like, basic facts about 12 Rods. Uh, they're actually from, originally, the main guy. Um, let me find this article. I have too many windows open here. Um, the main guy's name is Ryan Alcott, and he has a interesting voice, we'll say. Um, uh, and him and the other members of the band are from um, Oxford, Ohio. And this this jumped out to me because Oxford, Ohio, is like a college town. Uh, it is where. Uh, Miami University is Miami of Ohio. It's called Miami of Ohio for some reason. And I know of Miami of, Miami of Ohio mostly for the fact that, like, th that's where it felt like everyone from my high school went to from college. <laughs> like, oh, really? Like, all the normie Jesus freaks who weren't, like, total Jesus freaks, like, went there. And then, like, you know, the super conservative, because I grew up in a conservative, like, hyper-religious area, and then the super conservative people like went to the the Nazarene University that was nearby or like evangelical stuff. So it's like the oh, 
yeah, it was just like the default college that I guess a lot of people went to from my high school. And I imagine it it probably, I mean, I know it's a college town, but I don't think it's like that liberal. Uh, no, it doesn't to, seem sound like that. And this is, this is the fir- first time I've ever heard of it, so. Yeah, but yeah, they, um, they relocated, they grew up in Oxford, Ohio, and then they relocated to Minneapolis. Minneapolis has a weirdly, like, pretty important legacy in music just from i i guess basically just from prince and husker du and and the replacements um in the 80s but all that happened Mm -hmm. in the 80s and of course our our friend ryan schreiber is from minneapolis um ah and that is where pitchfork started originally before uh it moved to um chicago and then you know eventually new york um, I, so I want to read, um, just something that, uh, this is from an interview in the ringer, uh, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's interviewing Ryan Schreiber. He says, um, it start, uh, Schreiber, uh, started the site as a teenager in the mid nineties in mid nineties, Minneapolis, though he initially called it turntable and used an even more Byzantine review scale. There were ratings from day one, but they started out as percentages. Like, instead of 6.7, the score would be 67%, he writes. Ah, yes. A year later, I realized that metric was too abstract to be very useful. So, uh, this, so 12 rods gay was technically given a 100%. Um, he also said that... Um, about the rating scale, the famous pitchfork rating scale. He's like, I like that it kind of felt scientific without any actual science to it. That kind of absurdity was really funny to me. That's, that's where the scale comes from. Um, also a good branding mechanism, I guess, for pitchfork, certainly, because they're the only ones who had a scale like that. Um, but yeah, but by then his fledgling publication had already doled out its first two 100% to 12 rods, yay? And Walt Mink's El Producto, which was another Minneapolis group that they gave um, Mm -hmm. a 10 to shortly after this. Um, What he says is, they were both noisy and ambitious uh, local rock bands made good. This is from Ryan. Walt Mink and 12 Rods were probably the two best bands in Minneapolis. And to see those normal kids in my town putting out records I loved, playing packed rooms and getting played on college radio, it was kind of the coolest thing in the world to me. I was really struck by this idea that there was this whole subculture in music that was kind of for misfits, that these guys made it feel real because it was happening right around the corner from me. That gave me the push to carve out my own space. So, yeah. Um, it's this the, the sort of like local pride thing is such a weird part of early Pitchfork history. Um, like, it, it just makes so much sense now hearing this because I, I was reading a Jim O'Rourke review from 2002 and like the first two thirds of the entire review is just this guy being mad that Jim O'Rourke left Chicago for New York. (laughs) That's the whole first like chunk of the review is this guy being super salty about like, Oh my God, you sell out. I can't believe you left Chicago and went to New York. And like, so to know that these guys were like, Oh yeah, our first two tens are to local Minneapolis bands. I think one sp- says a lot about like the weird uh, local pride of indie music in the, the late nineties. Absolutely. Um, but also of this, this sort of weird 
like local sectarianism that was pitchfork stock and trade until they became extremely mainstream. Well, you have to also think about the fact that the the internet was completely it was like not it became more of a broadly used thing by the end of the 90s, but it still really wasn't that way in sure. in 1996. I mean, this is the age of web rings and everything else. Right. Um so uh, I imagine the intent like of starting a website like that, you wouldn't necessarily anticipate growing in the way uh, that they even grew like a few years later. Um, so things being just inherently very locally oriented was just the nature of what music scenes were like, you know, at the time. Right. And I think the weirdest thing about... Uh, especially like the 2000s era we talked about is it's the kind of remaining local infrastructure of indie scenes and DIY and all that kind of stuff intersecting with the internet as an entity becoming more, you know, ascendant. And as one of them is kind of on its way out and another one is on its way in. (laughs) Um, so I think that that's like even Pitchfork in 2000 or 2002 is a much different entity from Pitchfork in like 1996. It's um, true, although not as different as that era of Pitchfork is from today, which I guess, you know, it's been 20 years. Yeah. Like, I think I think it's also like such a shift in. One of the things I'm sure we'll get into over the course of this project is how much the tone of music journalism and critique has changed um from this era because as much as we as much as we clown on pitchfork i there's something to be said for a bunch of weird locally proud bad writers over like uh, a music criticism scene that is either extremely bland or an anthony fantano video which yeah (laughs) like you get the sense, and this comes from like zine culture and you know all that kind of stuff. You get the sense that people are genuinely excited about like what's happening, you know, in their local city, in a way that like, you know, I'm sure there are scenes like that that exist to some extent, but it's it's really not the same kind of ecosystem. They do, but they're they're different because you're not local people aren't really making zines that people are reading about it anymore. Like it's not even like in like the you know. Chicago DIY scene. Most of that still happens on Bandcamp and the internet. Yeah. Like I know about a lot of that stuff. Uh, right. I like follow some of those people on social media because yeah, everything is oriented towards the internet. Um, so when 12 rods, 12 rods eventually broke up in 2004 and uh, it did not seem like they led a, a very happy existence. Uh, no, they, they, most of them sound like jerks. Although I know the drummer went on to like, work with like John Vanderslice and the Mountain Goats. So I, you know, he got a career. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, this is yeah. from Ryan Olcott, who's the lead guy with the interesting voice. Um, so this is like, they moved to Minneapolis and this is talking about the period of, of when they made gay. It says, I remember someone wrote me a note on a napkin that said, stop mumbling into the microphone. Then we recorded the first half of the gay EP, which at the very, at the time was called a very special Christmas gay i don't know why it would be called that but anyway um came out and rev 105 put it into heavy rotation i'm gonna assume that's a local um right because this is in a, a local city pages what i think this is like a local minneapolis uh website um uh matt quit so that was a member of their band matt uh 
who was the guitarist for a while. Uh, so instead of a bass player, we had a dat machine. Uh, oh, so wow. Okay. Some labels started courting the hell out of us, and we were 20, 21, 22 years old. We were the first American band signed to V2, and it was a big deal. That's kind of crazy. It, yeah, that's extremely weird. V2, I, I know, like... Yeah, yeah just to ahead, summarize, sorry. V2 is the imprint of, like, Virgin Records that was started by Richard Branson, and, you know, orig- you know based in the UK, but uh, they were... I guess trying to branch off and you know this is America in the midst of still alt rock being a thing although kind of cl- cl- getting to the tail end of that yeah I, it's you know it's different from like 4AD signing the Pixies right like it's it's not like an indie label that's very local finally reaching out um, V2 is almost more like the start of the kind of thing we got into at the Wilco episode of these sort of um uh indie posing major labels yeah it's like a quote-unquote indie type imprint uh, of a major label i i remember granddaddy was on v2 that's the band that i really remember yeah granddaddy and like block party and um the high llamas who i think we've talked about before oh interesting um you know a lot a lot of like you know british quote-unquote indie acts were were on there but yeah Um, um it's very weird it is very strange. He says 12, epi- 12 rods just seems like the the first of so many things while still being ultimately forgettable. Yeah. Well, what he says here is at the same time we were so overwhelmed with all the business stuff. If we were given the option, we would have signed to a smaller label. I think that probably would have been a better option for them. That's mm-hmm. my own inter- interjection. Um, this is going back to Ryan, uh, but the major labels were the first to step up to the plate. James Deers at the Twin Cities Reader put out the bug to a lot of ENR people who were calling about Minneapolis bands, asking what was the next big thing. We didn't even have to go to New York or anything. People were flying in from LA to see us. That just tells you what the music industry <laughs> was like in, in the 90s. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, we played South by Southwest right after we got signed. We were really a high-maintenance band because we had a mechanical bass player <laughs> and our own monitors. Anyway, our gear was sabotaged, we think, by another band. We had strings missing off our guitars. One oh, of my e- God. <laughs> one of Ev's keyboards, that's another member of the band, was damaged and wasn't turning on. We had 10 minutes to set up and play in front of everyone. We were this big hype thing and we played terribly. It was our worst show ever and it was the most crucial show we ever played. The the other band's singer was a dick and I couldn't figure out what his deal was. He probably used one of our strings as a tourniquet backstage. The demise of 12 Rods had everything to do with that band. Cox. This is this, a what a lovely human being I'm sure to from, be around and speak to. From that point on, it was hopeless. V2 nearly lost all interest in us. When the second record came out, they took all our money and threw it into some big radio thing to get it on K-Rock. Basically fucking payola. And that failed. We had a big time manager who apparently managed Soul Coughing and Ween. Uh, Both we were, infamously successful bands. <laughs> we were low priority on his list. Um, all of our connections for college-level promotion were out of the question because they knew we'd been shopped to the mainstream. Once they find out that they know you're trying to get back onto them, they won't pay attention to you. So, yeah, they signed to uh, a major label too early. The major label didn't know how to promote them, didn't put any effort into it. And uh, the scene didn't like them because they got signed so quickly. 
uh, and they were already on a major label. So everyone's like, well, you think you're too good for us. So, and I'm sure, um, especially with the, the idea that some other band sabotaged uh, their show and that everything was ruined by that, I feel like there's probably more going on with that story that we're not hearing. I don't, I don't feel like our friend Ryan Olcott is maybe a reliable narrator here. But. No, it's an extremely paranoid, like, assumption. <laughs> But yeah, I guess the most notable thing that happened after is, uh, for some reason, their v- <laughs> V2 brought in Todd Rundgren to record their second full-length album in 2000, and apparently he did nothing. <laughs> he like would just turn on the the record and then like read magazines and drink, um, or you know, turn on to record and like yeah. Apparently he did nothing, and yeah, and eventually they, you know. Called it quits. Uh, although apparently the guy from Bonnie Vera is a fan and like re-released one of their records later. So uh, I don't want to talk about Bonnie Vera though, because that guy. <laughs> I don't like Bonnie Vera anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and and we didn't really talk about the music, but the music's not anything. Um, yeah, well, we can it's, we can talk about it a little bit. There are it's like very lo-fi, like post-hardcore with a couple of synths in it. It's not. It's like a a band that Lifter Puller would have opening for them on tour. Yeah, you know, so I guess uh, I feel like I'm comparing everything to Built to Spill, but <laughs> I definitely... His voice is very similar. Yeah, um, to Doug March. And um, I actually get a little bit from Gay. So like later on, uh, their full-length record, they had a couple of songs from that EP um, on. And their most famous song is called I Wish You Were a Girl. And it's one of those things, kind of makes me think back to the broken social scene record of like, is there something going on here? Like, I mean, it's a little more obvious here. It's like, this guy is definitely singing about his sexuality. But in the in the environment of that scene, like, I guess it's stigmatized to be gay or to talk about it or buy or whatever his sexuality is um so i don't think it's just a a weird ironic joke in the in the realm of the frogs i think there's something more going on there um just based on the lyrics to i wish you were a girl Um, yeah it makes me think of the whole husker do thing of like two out of the three members of husker do were gay but no one talked about it well and And, not the ones not and none of the ones who looked gay yeah not that guy but anyway, and like you can, I mean, not to get all like, you know, it's not to make everything about identity or whatever, but there's definitely elements of that to like Husker do that are probably worth analyzing. And it's, it's just funny because that was like so much not the case. Like people just didn't talk about that kind of stuff in those scenes, whereas, you know, it'd be completely different now uh, in a lot of scenes. But also just to talk a little bit about 12 rods gate. Like I got a little bit of build to spill. I get a little bit of, um, what's the name of the, um, dismemberment plan, which pitchfork was also very big on kind of this like emo, but slightly like quirky, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a more artsy idiosyncratic version of emo. Yeah. That's, that's, so that's basically what post hardcore is, is like the, um, right. The, the weird mathy side of emo where, (laughs) You would get like the dismemberment plan, or uh, drive by J- drive like Jehu, or uh, Shudder to Think. Oh um, yeah, Shudder to Think. I forgot about them. You know, it definitely has that vibe to it, but it's not as interesting or well done. 
Well, yeah. So I think the best song is the first song, which is called Red. And I almost get like a My Bloody Valentine, like shoegaze thing from it a little bit with like the beat and like the swirling synths. It's pretty lo-fi about it, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. With that song in Mexico, um, also one of the tracks on there kind of has that. And then there's that song Make Out Music, which is just kind of like... I don't understand why they re-released that song on their second album. That's the one with the nanny nanny boo boo line. It's it's so awful. It is, and the way it, he sings it, it, it is, is so awful. That song is doing the '95, just like to an essence, to its yeah. essence. And then Gamo is kind of like the weird obligatory, like slow, slow core, like lounge kind of dance you know slow dance music i'm trying to think of what to it made me think of like that you know modest mouse covered that sleepwalking instrumental Uh, yeah it makes me think a little bit of that it does have it's a lot like that (laughs) it does have kind of a cool like distorted guitar solo Um, yeah but it but it does it definitely has this sort of like surfy take on mazzy star thing going on yeah mazzy star that's who i was thinking of yeah it's it's not it's not interesting it doesn't it doesn't feel like it has much of an identity the ep and yeah and and mexico is maybe the the other song i kind of like because it has like a little bit of a propulsive like my bloody valentine shoegazy thing um the other revolute is too much yeah uh revolute is extremely bad (laughs) I, I honestly don't remember the two songs as well. I've listened to this EP a few times now, so I don't think... I mean, you can listen... To, it's it's interesting time capsule, if nothing else. Like, if you listen to Split Personalities, which is their first full length, they already were kind of going in more of, a, like, a dismemberment plan direction. The vocals are much more kind of, like, up in the mix, and he's, like, trying to write pop songs, but in that kind of dismemberment plan sort of mold. I don't like it as much as the dismemberment plan, though. I, I have never... Li- I do not like his voice. I, he's no. One, he's one of my least favorite voices. Even on, like, some of the later albums that I listened to a few tracks from, his voice maybe isn't quite as bad, but... And also, like, I think Gay is a little bit more ambiguous and a little bit, like less musically like sure what it is but i think that kind of weirdly makes it a little more interesting than when they're trying to make like full pop songs oh i think Um, compared to the albums it's it's a much better release because again it has that kind of scrappy lo-fi quality to it that makes it i think more likable (laughs) yeah like a more professional release when I first heard it, I was like, this is not bad, to be honest. And then I listened again, and I was like, oh, I don't like this as, as much as I thought the first time. I and mean, I, I definitely don't think it's bad. I just don't think it's a, anywhere near a 10. Yeah, I would say, like, if we're ranking them, just so that we can do that now. Obviously, it's at the bottom. I think we can both agree that it's at the bottom of the albums that we've talked about. Um, yeah, I think so. I need to pull up my rankings real quick. Okay, it's at the bottom uh, for me. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I like the shins better than than this for sure. Um. <laughs> but I will say, I think, I think this this EP is going to be an interesting metric because I think anything that is above that, to me, I'm going to consider like pretty good, all right, you know, and anything below this, I'm going to consider not good. If that makes sense, 
It's going to be, yeah. I think, I think this is going to be my baseline. Like if something is above this, I'm not saying it's bad. It's pretty good. There's some interesting things about it. And if something is below this, then I probably don't like it really at all. So. I, I like that. Yeah. This, this, this feels like a good, a, a nice gulf to build the list around <laughs> <laughs> a perfect middle of the road. But yeah, that's 12 rods. I basically said everything that I could think of to say about them. They actually like reformed, I think, at one point. And then like, I think partially through help of Justin Vernon from, um, from uh, like him reissuing. And then it says on their Wikipedia, on September 2021, Ryan... Alcott announced via the band's Facebook page that he was making a new 12 Rods record with zero help, zero support, and zero financing. Wow, this guy <laughs> seems to be great at making friends, huh? Yeah, wow, what an actual... This, this feels, it feels like the kind of thing Billy Corgan would release upon like, yeah. reforming the Smashing Pumpkins with nobody. Um, one other thing I was going to say... Uh, is there's actually a book that seemed interesting, but it was way too expensive, and I couldn't uh, find other means, quote-unquote, of, of acquiring it. Um, but it's called... It's a book that came out in 2018, The Hopefuls, Chasing a Rock and Roll Dream in the Minnesota Music Scene. Um, and it's weirdly expensive. I mean... It's probably out of print. Uh, no, it's... Well, you can still buy it. it. It only came out a few years ago. But the thing I was looking on just like the Amazon, like, you know, uh, book summary or maybe Google books or something just for like, you know, parts of it. And the one part that it showed, it was talking about a band that I need to force you to talk about at some point, which is Kid Dakota. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I have but, not. Okay. We need to talk about Kid Dakota at some Feel point. Feel free. Because there's, there's an interesting thing to talk about there and we could potentially do a whole review because their most notable record came out in 2002 it's called so pretty anyway you can look you can look that up if you want but very underrated uh album this is our own pitchfork review of kid dakota (laughs) yeah it's called so pretty by kid dakota um and it's something i have uh some nostalgia for due to the website mp3.com but we can talk about that later oh wow okay yeah (laughs) That, that, that can be a whole thing um, but yeah, so that's 12 rods. Do you want to, do you want to, you want to talk about our friend David Cross? Yeah. So the article in question is, uh, David Cross's top 10 albums to listen to while reading overwrought pitchfork reviews. This was part of a period in the mid aughts, the early to mid aughts where the pitchfork would like ask a musician or somebody to be like, Hey, do a top 10 list for us. Any top 10 list you want. Um, so they asked David Cross to do it very soon after like giving his most recent comedy album a pretty bad review, um, or a pretty negative review, which like, you know, whatever. I, 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 I like Mr. Show, but I don't think David Cross's albums are actually all that good. Whatever. It doesn't matter. And I think it's funny that in response, he did this very petulant sort of top 10, yeah, top 10 albums listened to while reading over at Pitchfork reviews, which is just him quoting very choice, terrible pitchfork reviews, and then making up his own bands to go with them. However you feel about that element, the quotes I think are very illustrative of the era in a way that I think is useful to the rest of this show. 
Yeah, this I don't know is if from, you had a chance to read this, but... I've, I've read a little bit of it. I'll let you take the lead here, but this is from 2005, so um, if we're like going in the Pitchfork chronology, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but they re- the site really like ascended to being like a cultural force in probably 2004, I would say. Yeah, exactly. But this definitely goes back through like a lot of the older things. I'm going to skip... I, what I, I think what I want to do is read out some of the quotes (laughs) because especially like for albums we may or may not cover. Um, So like we have, well, we'll probably cover sung tongs by animal collective, but I love the quote here of the softest voices, layers, clear toned guitar figures upon each other as tear and bear whisper in harmony above as if singing to the vision, peering back at them from the skin of a backwoods Creek the rustic, secretive manner of their voices and the barely disturbed forest around them suggests that whatever ghost inhabits these woods are only too happy to oblige a lullaby or two. Um, which is... Wow. So much. That reminds me of... Um, well, I'll just give a brief <laughs> shout-out to um, uh, Nina Nastasia, who I did a like on my old podcast, the blood zone, I did a podcast about her and there was a review, I think of her album, the black and air from 2002. And it has a, because it's a folk album, it has a similar, like, Oh, it's like, you know, it's this bizarre, like uh fantasy escapist, like language of rural, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Very strange. Yeah. It's something in the water. I think, um, the next one I want to read. So the ones I'm picking out, I feel like are a comp like encompass the spectrum of a bad pitchfork review. And so the first one is this overly flowery, like fanciful story time. This one represents the, um, absolute like snarky. I'm trying to be Lester bang sort of intro. Uh, this is for the MIA Diplo album, piracy funds, terrorism, volume one. This is before MIA was like, super super this is like right when she was breaking out yeah this i mean this is definitely before paper airplanes um paper planes uh yeah so this is piracy fun serialism santa claus the virgin mary and terrence turkey time terrence just got the shaft this holiday season why bother with presents 2005's tickle me elma was supposed to be a chicken-legged sri lankan with so much sex and her self-spun neons you might as well get wasted off penicillin with willie nelson at a secret rex the dog show that's the beginning of the review it feels (laughs) like a family guy fill in the blank version of like a lester bangs <laughs> review where it's like yeah fuck you sex drugs whatever man i'm hip oh this is like um uh remember that video game gex enter the gecko yeah he's always like oh this is like christmas at danny devito's house <laughs> yeah right exactly this is I, yes this I, is the gex of pitchfork i like how um he gives these reviews all ratings and the ratings are ridiculous like for this mm-hmm. one he gives the rating of 4.001 um yep <laughs> um the fifth one i don't even know how to read this but the 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 third one i'm going to talk about in the fifth one here is the review of autocar entitled which is one of several reviews in the form of a one-act play. This one being a conversation between uh, Tortoise and Achilles. Um, 
which is which starts with uh, I'm not even gonna I can't read this to you. You'll have to find it. I'm not going to do a one act play on the podcast. Um, but albeit to say this isn't the first one like it. Um, there is I know at least one other one for a Mountain Goats reissue, um, and one I that I swear is for a pulp album, but might not be. Might just reference pulp. There was that Pavement uh, reissue review that was all on notebook paper. I remember that one. There's that one, but that one wasn't literally a one-act play with dialogue and stage directions. So if you've ever read like uh, R.A.P. Tiny Mixtapes, but they kind of, uh, they kind of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> took this and, and made it into their thing after Pitchfork stopped making it their thing. A lot, there are like several Tiny Mixtape reviews that are also like that. I think this is when I first got my opinion that music criticism is where like people from MFA programs go and they realize they can't make it as a writer. <laughs> well, until recently, and now there, now there's no way you make any money off of it. So now there's nowhere to go. Yeah, they're they're all done. Um, and the final one. Uh, this this says so much about about them as a, as a concept. So this is a Ryan Schreiber review of Franz Ferdinand. And it says a lot about Ryan Schreiber as an, as a writer, as you will see. So this includes the following Ryan, that cow is dried up. It's Gordita meat. I've even done the, I'm not going to do a concept review anymore. Concept review. Then there's another, then this, this other Ryan says, hear me out. I'm seeing a comeback for one of your zany characters. Ryan said, making stupid TV producer gestures with his hands. I'm seeing the interpretive dancer Santa Schultz, the Revolutionary War soldier Ham Grass, advice columnist Professor Rock, diapers the glam-loving lab monkey, Justin Davies, the bass player of the Hold My Coat, the Bummel Gork, Kelly the masseuse, Volo Drag the Yugoslavian sycophant, Paul Bunyan, and Wolfie, besides you promised the Franz Ferdinand review months ago. These are all literally things Ryan Schreiber has put into his reviews. This is not a joke. <laughs> it's, it's the Ryan Schreiber Vanity Project show. But also just any person who would put a character into a review like one of these is, I think, a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think, think you're that, unsalvageable. I think, that, I think there are better reasons to evaluate Ryan Schreiber in that way. <laughs> Oh sure, i.e., like not paying your writers uh, much. But at that all, doesn't mean my reason things. isn't still valid. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> there can be multiple. I just think the minute you invent diaper, the glam rock loving monkey, whatever the fuck he said, and like this is going to make my review interesting. No, stop. You're doing it wrong. It does make me wonder, like. Um, I, I feel like that was kind of a voice of of that kind of media from that era. I, if you're a video game person, you might know of uh, Tim Rogers. Do you, have you ah, seen yes. any of Tim oh, Rogers? I know Tim Rogers, absolutely. Yeah, if you read any of his old, uh, I mean, I think he's a better writer, and he always was a better writer than Ryan Schreiber. But if you read any of his old insert credit pieces from the 2000s, uh, there's a lot of that. <laughs> there is, but but even that was kind of a commentary on like the way that GamePro used to do it, right? With like you know Scary Larry and stuff, like the way that reviewers in old magazines would have personas. Um, whereas this feels like almost directly some kind of Lester Bangs worship. And we'll yeah. have to do an episode on Lester Bangs eventually because so much of the bad writing on Pitchfork comes from him, essentially. <laughs> yeah. 
what and I like him, but you know, a it, lot of it, sins have been committed in his name. I it, it, like when we do when we talk about Kid A, we can talk about this more. But this article that I quoted from The Ringer like talks about the famous uh, review by Brent DiCrescendo yeah. about uh, Kid A, and he said, and this is something that he said. Um, I wanted to make someone feel when they read my review the way the record would make them feel when I listened to it. The experience and emotions tied to listening Kid A are like witnessing the stillborn child while simultaneously having the opportunity <laughs> to, s- to see her play and IMAX still holds up two decades later precisely because of how outlandish it's willing to be. I think, I think basically what this is saying is... Um, he's Okay, this is... We were definitely trying to entertain people. We wanted to be funny, and we wanted to be a little irreverent uh, because everything else was establishment. There was spin, and I loved it, and any of us would have killed to write for them, of course. But we were just these nobodies trying to be something in a pretty nascent format. And because of that, it was just a lot snottier. And it got, and as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, it became the establishment. So there. There you go. That's the summary of Pitchfork right there, folks. It is, but it's also like it just wasn't entertaining or funny. I think there's reviewers who do that. <laughs> I think Tim Rogers is actually a good example, especially like nowadays, you know, insert credit is a little, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Well, insert credit doesn't exist outside of being a podcast that I've been on multiple times. Now, um, oh no. What am I thinking of? What was his website called? Action um, button. Action button. Action button was a little petulant, but, <laughs> um, definitely but th- with their, with their list of the best, the 34 best games of all time or some, and they only did like half of them. Right. And it was all kind of trolling, but I mean, you know, his like video content and his articles and stuff are all generally entertaining and funny in a way that these feel like an, at, when you're at an open mic night and somebody comes up and is very outrageous and it makes everybody in the audience feel embarrassed. Yeah, well, clearly Pitchfork writers, it clearly it worked on somebody. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I mean, it kind of goes back to the idea that it felt like the only thing around uh, well, on I the th- internet. I think the fact that it was on the internet and it felt like, what what else were you going to look at? The stylus? I- yeah, I think I think especially when once we got towards the mid 2000s, they were just like uniquely positioned in a way that made them kind of take advantage of the the way that the landscape was changing towards like web media. Mm-hmm. Um and there was a lot of like turnovers culturally happening, you know, in the, from the late 90s to the early 2000s as far as like music and the music industry adjusting to the internet, which is kind of the thing that really undergirds this whole period that we talk about how so much technology changed like rapidly versus, mm-hmm. you know, you listen to like nineties lo-fi self-recorded albums versus like, you know, Oh, inverted world in the, and it's like, <laughs> right. there's a huge jump and I'm not saying Oh, inverted world is the greatest sounding record or anything, but there's a pretty huge, but it's jump. a very, it's a very different kind of bad sounding. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a huge jump in technology and access and, um, you know, so, and the way that the internet and file sharing and stuff like that was playing into this space growing and becoming its own thing is just very like, it's just something that Pitchfork was positioned in a, in a, in a great place to, you know, take advantage of, um, so yeah, this is a, a great segue into Dan Beckner um, from Wolf Parade, who for some weird reason follows me on Twitter. 
Um, I, I doubt he's probably listened to, the, to our podcast. Maybe he But if, if you're listening, hi, Dan. Yeah. Uh, Handsome Furs had a pretty good album. I, I would be pretty... I, I, I feel kind of embarrassed to, like, the idea of, like, that maybe we're going to interview somebody who is, you know, around that scene at the time. But listening uh, on his podcast, The Bottle Men, um, he talked about uh, Canadian indie rock from 2000 to 2006. And it honestly, like, confirms a lot of what we were talking about on, like, the Broken Social Scene episode, especially, and some other ones. Um, and just, like, you know, he says various things about like the um the scene of the time and the fact that like for example rents were really cheap in in like montreal and even parts of toronto at the time uh and we're right now in the midst of like rent being the most expensive it's ever been i Uh, mean that's that's like how music scenes have always been right that's how new york was in the 70s that's how seattle was in the 90s um, where the rent's cheap, art will usually function, and then where art happens, it gets gentrified. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really interesting. I really required listening if you listen to our podcast because uh, mm-hmm. you get it straight from the the horse's mouth or whatever you want to say. Yeah, no, uh, it, it's 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 really. I I think I think it's important context. Also, the drummer from Arcade Fire, I think, is on there as well um, as a as a guest. So. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe at some point I can, we can interview Dan or, or somebody else. Um, cause that would be, that would be fun. Yeah. Again, Dan, big handsome furs fan. We're out here. <laughs> I liked, I liked, uh, what's that song, um, from, uh, you're dreaming or whatever that Wolf Parade song. That's a good one. Oh, shut up. Shut, um, no, well, shut up. I am dreaming is sunset. No, no. Uh, it's from their, uh, 2017 album. He has a song called you're dreaming. It's a Dan Beckner song. It's a good song. Oh, this is my problem. I haven't kept up with the new wolf parade stuff. Yeah. Julia, take your man home is my favorite wolf parade song. And that was on, but that's a Spencer Krug song. Yeah. But if uh, you want to be on Spencer, big sunset rubdown fan too. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so definitely listen to that podcast. That's all I can. Um, oh, and the one thing that that Dan said that I think is really interesting because I heard this echoed um, again. Man, man, this is a perfect transition. Actually, um, mm-hmm. I heard this echoed um, by Peter Gabriel. In Peter Gabriel was talking about Kate Bush's career uh, and like why she was successful. This is something that Dan said that reminded me of it. He said there was space to fail and like a lot of having success and having a scene and growing something is just having the space to fail over and over again until something works. And you see with a band like 12 rods, for example, uh, they get signed quickly. Uh, they're already in a major label. They have no space to fail. So they flounder, you know, mm-hmm. whereas some of these bands in this scene, because ch- rents are cheap and there isn't like a lot of focus on them, you know, it's kind of a, a gradual buildup. They, they're they in the place where they have space to fail before, you know, things become so big. And I think that is, that's the difficult thing about so much music these days, because, um, it's like, I mean, there are, you know, different situations that different people are in, but a lot of like, if we're talking about like TikTok and whatever, a lot of artists like blow up uh, and become a thing and then just don't really have, you know, there's not a consistent in- investment in people's career. And I think no. that would end up becoming a problem with the indie scene as well, but it's all in of the 2000s, but it's only became worse. It's only become worse in that like, 
you know, once a, an artist starts falling off, it's it's pretty much it for them. You it, know, it's, it's sort of it's so it's sort of a thing that's always been there, but it's gotten worse and worse as the record industry has, as the major label structure has gotten closer and closer to collapse, just full on collapse. So in their desperation, they do things that we'll be talking about later, like this this whole TikTok plan to try and get viral and do whatever they can to make any kind of money. Yeah. Um, and as a result, if at any point you don't look like you're going to re- recoup your investment, that's it. There's no long-term strategy. But in the meantime, we're going to take a little coffee break and come yes, back. Yes, if we could. Amazing. So, so just imagine like uh, the, the coffee break music from Earthbound. I'm going to reference a video game here. The coffee break music from Earthbound playing right here. This is from Ted Gioia. Ted Gioia, uh, I think. Gioia, okay. I, I don't actually know this this guy very well, but he wrote, um, <laughs> I just find the name, The Honest Broker, pretty funny. Uh, but a music writer, longtime music writer. Uh, he's talking about uh, record labels dig their own grave, and the shovel is called TikTok. And basically, this is talking about a phenomenon that we referenced a little bit with the Tori Amos thing. I think one of the things that I was thinking about is Halsey, the pop star, released a video where she said, I have a song I love, I want to release ASAP, but my record label won't let me. I've been in this industry for eight years, and I've sold over 165 million records, and my record company is saying that I can't release it unless they fake a viral moment on TikTok. Now, there was a lot of like discourse about this because obviously it ended up becoming a viral moment and they right. did actually end up releasing the song. Um, so there's some weird, like, what he I mean, says. is just because, it, he- just because it worked doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah, there's some heavy meta-narrative baggage to unpack. Uh, in order to conquer your label's TikTok addiction, you need to use TikTok. Uh, the labels think they found their savior. Artists will get famous on TikTok and label execs can just sit back and watch the rest the cash pour into their bank accounts. What this is basically saying is that uh, something like TikTok basically engenders complete complacency because they don't, they're not bothering with, they're not bothering with like they don't like the 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 major labels are not actually doing very much in this situation. The these TikTok stars when they go viral have a lot of the leverage. So some of these contracts that normally are very uh, label friendly and not artist friendly have been changing. Um, just as an example, he talks about. Um, According to this in-depth investigation, record labels who signed TikTok stars initially demanded complete master, complete ownership of all the master recordings and tried to keep 85% of the future revenues. As And those poor young TikTok youngsters wouldn't even collect the paltry 15% until they paid off their advance. Uh, you might think this sounds like exploitation, pure and simple. 
it is. Uh, but it is, but, but it's also a very typical contract. But those terms have been industry uh, practice for ages. But guess what? The TikTok influencers now have so many labels chasing after them that they can play them off against each other. They're now putting the squeeze on the legacy music industry in a way that I've never seen before. According to the same source, labels are now offering a 50-50 sharing arrangement while also agreeing to return ownership of the masters to the artist at some later date. Um, why are record labels suddenly so generous? They really don't have any other choice. After decades of destroying their own value chain, they have little value to offer. So a lot of these artists are in a position where they hold a lot of leverage. I guess the other problem with that though is like it's music culture coming into the intersection of like what i guess i would call influencer culture um and some of these things might not successes might not have anything to do with the actual music involved or or anything because as we know like uh viral flukes can happen for any number of bizarre reasons i mean i mean most viral things are flukes i feel like at this because it's such a it's such a quirk of culture yeah and as much as you know people can talk about like uh you know for example kate bush going viral now or like something like old town road which is the most famous example uh, kate bush going viral is is Makes sense, because that's an incredible song that was put on a very large platform in front of a young audience. Yeah, but as much as, you know, you want to talk about that, TikTok also made songs like Fancy Like by Walker Hayes into right. a hit. Uh, you can look that up if you want to. I've Not I've listened to song. Fancy Like. It's very, very bad. Um, pretty actually kind of became famous for being a bad song. Act is Is literally, it sounds so back in the day, you would get stuff like when of Montreal rewrote the lyrics to one of their songs to be an Outback Steakhouse commercial. Fancy yeah. like sounds like he rewrote a song to be an Applebee's commercial, but he didn't. That's just how it's written. It just sounds like an Applebee's commercial. It basically and it is says, an Applebee's it, it commercial. Mentioned, it is an Applebee's commercial. <laughs> this is uh, this is what Ted. How do you pronounce it? Gioia. Joya. 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 This is what he says. Let's cut to the chase. If this TikTokification of the music biz continues, what will be the end result? Here it is in a single sentence. Only unsuccessful musicians still need a label. Uh, think about the deep implications of that fact. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I think that's a very wrong-headed <laughs> analysis. No, no, no offense to Ted. Well, there's some aspects where I think he's right as far as... Um, you know, like the labels aren't actually really doing anything <laughs> to promote these artists. They're kind of just depending on this like viral. No, uh, this is platform. true. It, it, it's a funny quirk of like all of their previous methods of PR, um, you know, radio, magazines, things that they could pay an artist into no longer exist. And the ways that people do become well known are in no way under their control. So, Clearly, they're like clearly there's fear there, and they don't know what they're doing, and that's why like you know a lot of independent artists they also and a big part of it is they, they don't understand that's why this TikTok thing is happening. They don't understand how TikTok works, so they're trying to force virality. Um, it's why like in the end, a lot of like the more successful indie musicians are either rich enough to hire PR um, or are their own PR. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, there's a, I, I feel like there's an increasingly pretty big split, and I don't feel like this gets talked about enough in quote-unquote indie music between artists who have some sort of resources or backing from whatever, like, legacy indie labels. Um, you know, you're, I don't know, I don't even know if St. Vincent counts as, like, being indie at that point. You know, you're, you're St. Vincent's, your perfume geniuses, your, you know, uh, your Mitski's, your, you know, etc. Sure, yeah. Um, versus, like, uh, a lot of, like, what I would consider, like, actual DIY stuff, like that Chicago DIY music that you're you're referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, labels, like, net labels. A lot of the, like, you know, Vaporwave and kind of electronic music labels. And, and there's just a lot of stuff like that through Bandcamp and stuff like that. Um, which is the majority of stuff, obviously, uh, where everyone is pretty much doing self-promotion. Um, and there are pretty much no uh, PR agencies involved at this point. Right. Um, and it's difficult because most of those artists don't get any recognition in any sort of legacy publications or whatever. And they're not really in a place where even they're um, getting recognition on like uh, I don't know like like obviously YouTube could be a venue because it's a YouTube is like such an important venue when you talk about video games but for mm-hmm. music it's basically nil because of all the copyright restrictions outside of someone like Anthony Fantano and a few like other exceptions right and even then they they can't really play the music they're talking about like yeah so which I think is, which I is think a big that's detriment. Wh- yeah, I think that's why stuff has gone to TikTok, but there's also a weird flash, flash in the pan uh, aspect of TikTok. Like, there's definitely a huge generation gap with like who's using it and who it should be for, and mm-hmm. like stuff that does go viral on there doesn't necessarily stay in people's consciousness at all. Like, at least during the era of, you know, like indie stuff, you could you know, of like the two thousands, you could read a review of a band and be at least aware of like who these people are and maybe you want to see them or whatever. But the engagement has become so passive because it's this, just like this ongoing kind of flash in the pan spectacle. And I, I I feel like at the end of the day, that's not going to be good for artists. Well, and and I think the information feed is so much bigger now. One of the things I've been thinking about talking to like some of the younger people I work with is how, with every year that goes by, the amount of music there is to listen to is exponentially larger. So like, you know, when when we were growing up, you know, it felt somewhat more reasonable to listen to like older music um, because we were selling the CD system. You're only getting like, you know, as far as CDs, you'd be interested in like a, a dozen, maybe a month. Um, and so there and then there was plenty of this older stuff that you could check into now you know, we have, even if we're just talking about rock music, 70 years of music history, um, and every year, hundreds and hundreds of albums are coming out that you would want to be, that you would be interested in. And And it becomes impossible to keep up with. And like, even in the, I mean, towards the end of the 2000s, you know, obviously the access to that back catalog increased rapidly, but it still Mm -hmm. wasn't quite the same as having like a Spotify where you could just access everything right there. And it's all just a mash without context. Yeah, exactly. Like, I I don't envy anybody trying to, like... I remember when I was a kid, I was like, I want to know more about music. I could just buy a magazine or, like, you know, maybe download something on Napster, which would take, like, 30 minutes. So there is, like, 
a sort of gra- gradual uh, intake <laughs> to, to mm-hmm. ramp up to that, or you would like get stuff from your older siblings. Um, and now it's like you have everything at your fingertips go nuts, which is both good and I think very bad for discoverability. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can get into both the Kate Bush hit, which Kate Bush, I think uh, running up that hill is uh, the f- the fifth on number five on the top 100 right now. It, it was number it hit four number for two. a while. <laughs> oh, no, I think it got to number four. Um, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look. I think that's the highest it got. It's number five right now. It says the highest it was was number four on here. Are we looking at UK or US? US. Oh, okay. I was thinking about UK. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It got to number one of the UK apparently. So yeah, yeah. No, I mean she was always a bigger deal in the, the. But this is by far her biggest hit in the US. The thing is, like running up that hill was also by far her biggest hit in the US anyway. Even though mm-hmm. it never got into like the top twenty or whatever. I don't think originally. No, but I think thing- it, it 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 peaked out at thirty. Oh, okay. Um, that was one of the few songs that ever got re- radio play in the U.S. So, you know, it being resurrected, I, I, I heard there were a few other of her songs in um, Stranger Things. But um, that being resurrected, um, I mean, like, Running Up That Hill is, like, the song of hers that's constantly covered. I hear it everywhere anyway. So it doesn't mm-hmm. really surprise me that that's the one song. It does make me feel like, I mean, and I, I of course, am super happy for Kate Bush that more people are being exposed to her music. But the thing is, the way that, like, so many of these things become hits is there's absolutely no context to them. They're flash in the pan. There's no, like, way to kind of, like... People don't engage with them in the way that they're really trying to engage with, like, the full history of an artist. And that might be a little different in the case of Kate Bush because she's so famous, you know, for being an important artist. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think this hit is, like, a, is a total flash in the pan. I'm not sure that it will lead to a Kate Bush resurgence or whatever else, but maybe that's my own feelings. Yeah, I don't... I, I I guess it depends on how you define resurgence. Um, it does seem like there is very much like a younger generation finally becoming aware of Kate Bush. And so while I don't think she's going to be up in the top 10 forever, I do think I'm going to have less interactions where I mention Kate Bush and nobody knows who I'm talking about. Yeah, that's true. Um, which is its, its, its own kind of cultural like salience, I think. Yeah, but she's somebody who already has had such a strong reputation for for years and years and years even before um, you know any anything like this. So. For sure, but I think we t- I think at least something I take for granted a lot is that there's the people I hang out with and the people of my generation and older, and then there's like teens. <laughs> What I'm saying is, if they wanted to look into stuff, Kate Bush is one of the first artists that they would find out about versus a lot of other artists, like newer artists. Um, like, if they wanted to look into any older artist who has, like, a reputation of being, like, an important female musician, then Kate Bush is pretty much comes up as number one on the list a lot of the time. Sure, but th- that's also, like, that's assuming a level of, like, investigatory um, impetus and also that the discoverability is going to lead us there. Like one of the other things we were going to talk about is how discoverability when you look into things is actually a lot weirder now than it used to be. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, if we're talking about... One thing I wanted to mention uh, in regards to the Kate Bush thing is uh, the artist Zola Jesus, uh, who has a new album out, she she tweets a lot of stuff that is critical of the music industry. I actually... <laughs> she had a Discord for a while that, um, that I managed to join because uh, my friend David, uh, who has a lot of music industry connections, my friend David, uh, who writes... Uh, David Turner, who writes Penny Fractions newsletter, writes about the music biz. Um, but anyway, it was like a... It was like a um, about like you know streaming and uh, alternatives and all that kind of stuff. You know, it it was very short lived. Uh, she probably thought I was annoying because I like posted in there all the time. Um, oh, I'm sure you're fine. But um, yeah, so she 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 tweeted about Kate Bush and she basically said just to summarize that um, having an artist like Kate Bush in this day and age would be impossible. Uh, for an, for a numerous amount of reasons, and a lot of people replied, and they were like, "Well, but what about you know X? What about I don't know Mitski or somebody like that?" And it's like she was saying, which I think is a hundred percent true. It's something we talked about with Tori Amos, but it's even more true with Kate Bush. Um, and ag- again, echoing the the Dan Beckner comment about the Canadian indie scene, Kate Bush is somebody who was given space to fail by her record company, like space and uh, resources and money. Yeah, like imagine. Well, first of all, someone who didn't previously, who wasn't previously producing their work, their own work, which mm-hmm. Kate Bush did not start out producing her own work, um, suddenly giving her the reins. So that that would never happen for, and for she like was a, also extremely young when she started. Yeah, for like a major label artist. So imagine giving like a twenty year old girl like the reins to produce. Like that's just not going to happen uh, in the major like label ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to happen. They're never going to met. They would never release an album like the Dreaming. Ever. No, ever, ever, ever. I was I was just about to say like the Dreaming is such a. It's the kind of thing that would get you dropped. It, it's kind of a Yankee hotel Foxtrot sort of thing where, because, you know, kick inside to never forever are great, but like their pop albums, they had singles. Um, and the dreaming is extremely weird. It's the kind of weirdness that allowed her to produce hounds of love. And it's the kind of thing that a label would hear and be like, Nope. <laughs> well, and Yankee hotel Foxtrot was incredibly well reviewed. The dreaming was a critical failure too, when it Ex- came out. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, 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 you know, it's a standoffish album. <laughs> but imagine them giving... The first single spa- was Sat in Your Lap, which I didn't realize. Yeah. But even after that, for three years, they gave her space and resources to eventually produce Hounds of Love, which ended up becoming a hit. But that's like... And then, you know, for years afterwards, she had a she was in a position where, you know, she had a good enough reputation, but she still wasn't like Kate Bush, Kate Bush. And at that point um, in, you know, 1993, when she decided to just not release anything for 12 years Mm -hmm. and she still had enough to kind of keep her going for those 12 years and then eventually release Ariel. So there's just no way for an artist like that to be supported in the way that she was, um and and to be like because kate bush was a pop star like she was a pop star oh, absolutely, like yeah weathering especially in the uk like she might have never been a super big uh force in the u.s but in the uk weathering heights i think was a number one hit like she, she had like multiple number one hits mm-hmm. and she was um, working you know she was working with david gilmore of pink floyd she was working with you know all of these like peter I gabriel peter gabriel of genesis she was working with like really like famous 
musicians and like i don't know it's it's the kind of support and investment that you're right absolutely i mean you know she got her start in a way that's not really even valid anymore which is sending a demo tape out yeah well she it was one of the, it's the most similar situation is like a Billie eilish situation it's like a family friend was connected to the industry right um but, but i think the thing um but I, I think the thing about it is it's just like like artists aren't given like that kind of freedom because what an artist who exists in the pop landscape is and isn't has solidified so deeply mm-hmm. you know like it's almost solidified into this like weird sort of science and everything else has just become indie music. And that was sort of what happened in the two thousands in like the mainstream music industry is one thing, but if you wanted to do your own thing, which is like (laughs) you wanted to do what would be considered just music in any other decade previously, like in the (laughs) seventies or sixties, uh, that was now indie music, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, because things had solidified to such a degree to where that like wasn't possible anymore. And so it's just weird for people to take like various indie artists or, you know, people like Mitski or I don't know, St. Vincent or whoever, I, I don't know, like those kinds of examples, even Grimes and like use that as a thing to be like, well, we have these types of artists. It's like a lot of those artists are like funding their own careers. Like, yeah. And they're not on, they're not on albums. Like they're not on labels like EMI, right? EMI yeah. is huge. Um, and they don't, they don't receive, even some of the bigger names don't receive the amount of support that you think you do, that you think they do. A lot of them are just able to do it because either like again they come from money or they were lucky enough to get in on a certain like to know somebody to get in a certain label or ecosystem at a certain time because some of the artists that you know you can think of like even like a Mitski or perfume genius or saint vincent sort of came in at the end of that pitchfork 2000s indie wave and uh you know like when that was still like a little bit more of a viable thing yeah they kind of just squeaked in um so Saint Vincent especially, I, I, I think I, I would still consider part of like she started, I think, well in that range. Yeah. So I, I just think people need to realize that like it's it's not like if you want like an alternative, like there it has to be it has to be organized and made and people need to think more about like the mechanisms of the music industry because it's not people aren't just gonna magically make this great music that is handed down to you without especially music that is like of the level of like a Kate, you know, a hounds of love or a kid a, or whatever you want to talk, you know, these great giant ambitious albums. Yeah. What, um, what bums me without, out is it sounds like the interpretation of Zola's tweet was that there aren't artists like Kate Bush today. Um, when in fact, what she was saying is that to create an artist the same way to give an artist the same kind of environment Kate Bush had is impossible in our current structure. Yeah, and that is just without a doubt true. Yeah, it's just literally true. It's not a quality judgment, and it's not a character judgment. It is a judgment on the industry as it exists, um, and it just simply is true. <laughs> I guess what we can mention with regards to that, we were talking about viral like TikTok uh, mm. and, and, and viral Spotify hits as well. There was this phenomenon that... Um, uh, that was written about um, recently in, um, I think it was Stereo Gum. Uh, this was a, a year or two ago of 
uh, random like indie bands like having just fluke hits the, of of like album tracks and b-sides suddenly becoming by far their most listened to things on spotify mm-hmm. and um i think this started because damon krakowski who's involved with you know a very like active from galaxy 500 who's like a very active critic of the music industry and damon um, and naomi whose uh latest album is pretty good and the umaw which is the like an independent musicians union that is awesome yes the um yeah umaw um he like looked in because galaxy 500 their most listened to track was just this random album track called strange um which is good but i would not call the best song off of on fire (laughs) no and uh, he sort of looked into it and, and eventually realized that there was some sort of uh, algorithm on Spotify that was, when something is detected as being more like other music, uh, it ends up getting bumped up and auto-recommended on uh, like other playlists. So if it's more like a lot of other things, uh, Spotify will recommend that as like the next thing. And that this happened, so they like analyze specifically the music and this happened with strange because i guess the just the chord progression or something about that uh song made it more made it stand out in that way to where it's like it was more like other things and that happened with the pavement track harness your hopes which is uh, the, which is just the weirdest random and biggest yeah it's it's a so it's a b-side yes. off a single that was not big off of their like least beloved album I had never heard this song, and I had heard every single Pavement album. Yeah, because yeah, it's a B side. I mean, it's a good B side. I can kind of see why it would be in the algorithm this way because it's it has a very normal jangle pop sound to it that you know, outside of a couple songs from Terror Twilight or, or Bright in the Corners, is not really their sound. But it has forty million streams higher than their next most listened to song, and as and a result is the reason that they finally reissued Terror Twilight, which they had a big reissue campaign that stopped right before Terror Twilight and it never came out. They finally just did it. And they were, they're doing a reunion tour again. Yeah. And they made a music video. Uh, they made a for, music video for Harness Your Hopes. And it's it's a pretty interesting uh, video to reflect on, like this prestige music, because they hired, um, what's his name, who did Her Smell, that movie, Hers? Um, I do I not know. I've, I've seen this video, but... It, it reminds uh, me of Alex Gina. Ross Perry, who's like kind of a a, a pretty well known like indie film director, um, to to direct the video of this like Gen Z looking it girl, you know, looking uh, uh, girl like kind of like you know, it's like it's it's like kind of like a Tumblr girl kind of thing, except you know, she's like Gen Z age, um, and she's like, a lot, she's a lot like Juno that way, yeah. <laughs> And she's kind of like interfacing with old pa- clips of pavement, like playing. I don't know. It's, they're all they're all they're all pavement music videos. It's kind of like a, a a meta commentary on this idea of Gen Z interfacing with um with these these artists in this very weird particular way. Yeah, and again, like uh, I'm not mad about it. I think it's no. Cool. The video is pretty good. The pre- video is good. Like. People listening to good pavement songs is great. I think that's a good thing. Uh, it is weird. <laughs> it's 
it doesn't really have to do with like the music. It has to do with the random mechanisms of a fucking algorithm. Well, it's got to be a little bit of both, right? Because if the song wasn't there, then there wouldn't be any repeat listens, right? Um, yeah. Which I'm sure are a part of it. But it is like, it's that issue of discoverability and exposure, right? There's well, a lot of great in- songs out there that you're not going to be exposed to these days. And so the fact that these are the kinds of songs that are commonly exposed to people i think is a big part of it as well it's it's almost enforcing this kind of musical mush too because it's like it gets recommended because it's like other things so everything becomes like another thing you know (laughs) yeah i I don't know it's it's reinforcing this i don't know this this attitude which was kind of very against what the whole you know at least idea of like a lot of indie rock stuff was was being sort of distinctive or strange in at least one interesting way, if not fully that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's the thing that, that, that bothers me the most about it is, uh, well, one, it's not something that artists have any control over, so that's no. not good. Um, and the other thing is, it's just like, I mean, no love to like the traditional music industry, but like, or, and, and, you know, I'm not like trying to make Pitchfork out to be this, that it was ever this great thing that was, (laughs) did great things for artists because they had their own agenda. And there's definitely a lot of like issues that they played into that made, made things kind of go to where we are today. But, Mm -hmm. um, at least, you know, people are engaging more theoretically in a more like holistic way with somebody's like, uh, art in a way that that's like, because the context has been so eliminated, that's kind of, I don't know, out the window now. Um, and there isn't enough of a, because of the media ecosystem is not there to support like music criticism, and music journalism to the extent that it was in the 2000s. I don't know how we like get that. And even like YouTube, it's hard to do that uh, kind of commentary about music because of the fucking copyright right. issues. Right, exactly. So, which is why we're doing a podcast. But. Exactly. No one can sue us here. Um, what was the band that you wanted to talk about that has just suddenly become popular again? Oh, I mean, it's, it's just part of the same thing. It's, it's Life Without Buildings, who is a great band and whom everyone should listen to. But they are like sort of a post-rock with weird shouted vocals band that released one album in 2000 and more or less disappeared. Um, you know, the kind of thing that like, you know, diehard like indie kids who like this kind of mathy version of post-rock or whatever really we're into, but like weren't a huge thing. Their album got reissued eventually, but that was about it. And then suddenly the lean over got really big on TikTok for what I'm assuming is a similar reason um, through like Spotify exposure. But it was a very weird thing where I saw again, some of the uh, younger people I'm working with coming up and being like, Oh, have you heard life without buildings? Have you heard this song? It's so good. Weird. And it's like, it's cool. I think Life Without Buildings is a great band who more people should listen to. But it also it's so random that it's like it feels weird to reckon with. It's sort of like it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I wish this would happen with more other bands, and there's no way to do that. Yeah, there's no way to I mean the these companies have control over the algorithms and like stuff like 
you know, fancy like by Walker Hayes is in the same position as, you know, yeah, they have control over might... the, the algorithms and even they had to investigate it to figure out what was going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing that I was thinking about is I kept getting recommended this album or this song by Maria Taka, Takauchi called oh, yeah. Plastic Love. Have yeah, you Plastic ever Love. Seen, like YouTube recommend this to you all the time. Yeah. That's how City yeah. Pop got its big like resurgence was Plastic Love got really big again. Just from you, random YouTube recommendations, like somehow this like was all over YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it's it's it happens all the time with YouTube, right? Where you'll suddenly get like recommended a video you've never seen before has been on for like six or seven years, and suddenly has like millions of views. Like it feels like a similar thing. Like they made the algorithms; they don't pay attention to what they're doing, and every so often, as a result, the algorithm will just do. It almost feels like a thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters, right? Yeah. They recommend a lot of trash. Eventually, they're going to recommend something, recommend something good, like Plastic Love, like The Lean Over, like Harness Your Hopes, that people are going to be like, oh, I would like to listen to that again. Um, I just wish it recommended more good songs and less trash. Well, I wish it accompanied like some kind of more holistic understanding of these artists or the context. I wish it was I wish it was easy or or I wish there was a way to like do music commentary and and talk about this stuff in a way that people actually engaged with on a large scale like they used to with Pitchfork. But it's yeah. so like the ecosystem of media, like the the whole blogging ecosystem that existed in the 2000s that Pitchfork, you know, came out of originally is is pretty much dead. And, you know, some people started Substacks or whatever, but that isn't really, you know... That doesn't feel terribly sustainable. And, and yeah, no. every, every other... Everything else died. Tiny tiny mixtapes, gray estates, and, everything else is and gone. You can't do, and you can't do YouTube-like video essays about it. Because, right. like, that stuff helps... Uh, I know in, like, the world of video games or even movies, like... Uh, a popular YouTube video essay will like get or TV, eyes on something. Comics but... all the time. This shit happens, um, and you can't do it unless you're you're Fantano and people are there for your personality, which is cool, I guess. But you can't play the songs on the video, and it's hard to. As I mean, even he has admitted he has trouble getting people to engage with videos that aren't a Kanye video, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's it's a it's a common problem, and. I think is just a, a bad consequence of being in an algorithmically run media landscape. Yeah. Um, you, there's something to be like the, the elitism and walled gardens of the major label system is bad, but I think there's also something to be said for the art of curation and what that can do for like being exposed to things. Um, and there's where we're in a world that any curation that's done in a way that's accessible is math and like these sort of um, almost random obtuse uh, genre labels that Spotify puts on songs. It does make me wonder, and this is a question. Shout out to the people who love stomp and holler music <laughs> or the bubble grunge fans. Or wait, wasn't there a, a sea shanty? Thing? Yeah, the sea shanty. <laughs> yeah. My, I have a friend from college who used to do sea shanties and like invite people to eat like period food. And his name is Aaron. Uh, shout out to Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Uh, I actually, Way I, actually curve. <laughs> I actually enjoyed going to those. He dressed up like a 19th century naval officer as well. I think if you don't dress up like a 19th century naval officer, you're not allowed to be into shanties. 
He was very committed to it, which is, I think, what I liked about it. You gotta be committed to the bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the question that I wonder is, like, what would an infrastructure that would, like, actually support, you know, more close-to-the-ground DIY indie artists, like, what would it look like to where that is actually sustainable? And I think I've seen some aspects of that in, like, you know, some like Bandcamp labels that do actually quite well yes. uh, for stuff like stuff like um, the Orange Milk Records is the one that I was using as, as, as an example because I talked to the guy on my podcast years ago because he's he's also a member of a group called Death's Dynamic Shroud who has like a mixtape subscription club and like some of their releases, especially like ones that he made, have gotten some buzz lately. Um yeah, I think yeah. online labels are, especially on Bandcamp, are a great way to curate content because it's kind of like what labels were in the 80s where like yeah. if you bought a factory record or a 4AD record or an SST record, you had an idea of what you were getting into um, or you would trust that label to put out something you knew you would like. Um, and there's something to be said for how these labels are doing that on Bandcamp. Shout out to Fourth Strike, which is a label I help run. Um, but it's it, it's still um there's so many labels now in a way there weren't that <laughs> yeah it's it's and when stu- stuff is pretty it's stuff is pretty separated often by genre like it's right. very like so you don't really know about one thing if you're in one space you know exactly like, it's it's hard to yeah. kind of move between things I, I don't know. I, I mean, that's a difficulty that I've had because um, d- doing music for games, for example, like that's an ecosystem where there are a, now like starting to be like more musicians with acclaim, like doing music, like Japanese Breakfast did the music for this game, Sable and Machine right. Girl um, did the music for this game called um, uh, Neon White, right? Neon White, yeah. yeah. And Machine Girl isn't even like a... Machine Girl is actually... A, a perfect example of like an artist that is like quote unquote underground, but like every, the, I went to a couple machine girl shows and I've, I've talked to the guy, his name is Matt. He's a nice guy, but um, like I, like so many like young, I was the oldest person at the, at both shows that I went to. Right. And so many like young kids, like hyped, super hyped up for it. So like, clearly there's something going on there uh with some of these artists but um i I think it's similar with like but what i was talking about with like game music is like a lot of game musicians were the first people to jump to Bandcamp uh because they you don't really get paid very much like like making music for games kind of like not really (laughs) it's probably the least valued thing aspect of like a game and in the indie game space when it blew up there are a lot of people who uh, we're making music, and then we're just like, okay, well, I'll post my soundtrack on Bandcamp, and they started selling quite a bit. So mm-hmm. some people became successful off of doing that, just from selling off of Bandcamp. And I think um, both, uh, uh, like, you know, indie, uh, like uh, people doing game music or like chiptune artists or whatever, were some of the first people who were really successful on Bandcamp because they are not at all part of the other ecosystem that like something like pitchfork and stuff is. And I realized like over time, how much that sort of idea of like indie hipsterdom excludes all these things. Like why couldn't 
why can't you take like a video game soundtrack seriously, especially if you're talking about something like, you know, that's more left field, like the earthbound soundtrack or something like that. Or, you know, if the real heads know about the, the Evergrace. Oh uh, yeah. OST. Yeah. Kota Hoshino. I love that guy. Yeah. And love Forever that guy's Kingdom. music. Oh, and yeah, he, and he did, um, the armored core four answer soundtrack, which has some absolute yeah. bangers on it. Along with a lot of other people, like there are multiple people on that so yeah but the best songs are commotion <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely um and like some of that stuff i i think i think it would be really interesting to read to have to read stuff about that i think plenty of artists who are doing things in their own space uh there are interesting things happening to be written about and you know bandcamp daily has written about some of this stuff but there's just too much and bandcamp daily can't really be the venue for this to happen because it's not like a neutral site i mean it's not it's, it's like it's they, so funny i'm i'm, I'm sort of biased because i've written for bandcamp daily but it is it says something that the most like diverse in terms of like genre and exposure uh, period music periodical out there is Bandcamp Daily a thing that can exist because the records it advertises are funded fund go back into funding that journalism work and the only reason the journalism is in any way balanced is because most music is on Bandcamp yeah well and because of that they can't like be very critical of anything either though <laughs> no I mean what it is is it, it's it, it's closer to curation I think is it becomes yeah. more like what albums we're not going to also in the same way that we're not going to be you can't be super critical you're not going to review albums that you would be critical of you would review albums that I, you think are wor people worth being seen yeah um but i think that uh, there's just too much to for bandcamp daily to really oh, cover absolutely. and i mean part there of the reason to, that, it needs to be a more diverse know, environment absolutely yeah and part of the reason that um, Pitchfork got so much attention, both negative, a lot negative, is because of their reviews and because they took stances on things, which is not really something... Like, Bandcamp Daily is something I treat as like, oh, I'm just going to click on these streaming links to see if I like any of this music, mm -hmm. you know? Like, yeah, um, again, I, treat I, it I don't I, really read the articles for the most part. I, I unless do. Unless it's something I'm really, really interested in. I do mostly to see, like, is this the kind of band I would like or is this interesting? But it's also just like, um, it is, it's curatorial, right? It's, I go there to be exposed to bands if I'm looking for something new. And uh, you have to be super adventurous in a way that it's like, it's, it's difficult to expect that of most people. Yes. And it, it's, the thing is also, it's, has to it's being asked to carry more weight like you said it's asked to carry more weight than it can or should because the only other like the only other things out there are like what stereo gum and pitchfork which are both fairly similar although stereo gum is owned by itself so it's not as uh beholden but it's not like it covers a very different uh side of music from pitchfork yeah i mean there's something like the quietest but that's very uk specific also is the quietest still around yeah, the quiet. I I read it sometimes. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's still around. Well, um, awesome. I gotten some good recommendations from them actually that I haven't gotten from anywhere else. Um, but I also like a lot of UK music, even though our, our podcast is mostly about like US indie music. Um, anyway, um, I think it's just interesting to think about, especially if we're thinking about in light of um, you know. Uh, recent political happenings in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I will say is like, you know, one uh, very sort of, uh, you know, 
very large thing that lo- looms large in like my cultural memory is this idea when you know the Iraq War happened uh, in the Bush era that there would you know this ambient idea because of all the like famous Vietnam protest music that like oh the music is going to be really good you know because it was in the '60s like protesting this war and 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 now we're in this landscape and of course famously the music was as as feckless and apolitical as you could possibly get um, in terms of confronting anything in the 2000s. So it makes me wonder, is there like, is there, would there be a, like a growing desire for like politically oriented music, if not like maybe directly in like, you know, the protest music, Bob Dylan, Neil Young sense, then maybe in some other sense, like especially as we have, you know, not just this Supreme Court decision about uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, but uh, just about uh, this general environment of, of you know, rents going up and everything, uh, people being squeezed out and this feeling of possibility sort of going out the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you I know, wonder what that would like look like. I don't know. You know, I we talked about this. I have my issues uh, with with the premise a little bit in that. You know, at the time when the people were saying, oh, music's going to be great, it seemed very silly because, one, it assumed that there weren't any unjust wars between Vietnam and Iraq. Um, But two, protest music isn't innately good or effective, I don't feel like. You know, I even like the best protest music I like out or the stuff I like the most, which would be, you know, like Public Enemy or something where it's like, you know, getting out, you know, like saying something actual in a, in a way that appeals to people or is like, you know, shocks you out of whatever complacency you might be in, which I think is maybe the most effective thing a political art can do. Um, I feel like the sixties produced a whole culture and idea of protest music as this is my praxis is I will just write about what's wrong in the world as, as if you cannot see it. Um, and the, of the music was usually pretty secondary and not very good. Um, these days, I, w- I wouldn't, ag- I wouldn't agree about all of that. I think I like some more of those songs. I, I don't know. I bought like a, I bought like a, um, Buffy St. Marie record for like a dollar when I was up in Washington and I was listening to it and I had never heard a lot of those songs. And I feel like, uh, there's spe- especially a song called little wheel turn and turn, I think it's called, but it just felt like. I'm just listening to it. I was like, I felt like this is speaking to the moment for me right now more so than anything else that I listened to. That's from the last however many years. So well, I don't know. And I think that's maybe that's just how maybe I the felt. idea is like, what are you looking for in protest music? Do you want catharsis or praxis? Um, and I think some people intend for it to be praxis when it's, I think, better at catharsis. Well, okay. A question that uh, that could be asked then is um, in tandem with something like the. Um, the, the organization that Damon uh, Kay is part of, uh, the Union of Musician and Allied Workers, um, this push of maybe, I don't know, uh, trying to organize musicians um, sort of against, um, you know, the establishment in terms of both uh, just the music industry and what it represents and the whole kind of idea of maybe celebrity culture, pop celebrity um, because things have been going so 
you know, things have be- been becoming so unequal and so kind of split off. I, I don't know. It just makes me wonder if there's going to be a real thirst for that um, in a way that there hasn't been for a long time. I think because people so f- feel so pissed off about everything, you know. Yeah, I wonder. I I feel like in a way, it's already happening. Um, I mean, I think I think the fact that people are very angry and depressed is already coming out a lot in the music, right? Um, whether it's being direct or not, um, I think the you know, and I I think there's always going to be a lot of like leftist underground music that is you know, fairly outspoken. I think the, the, the question for me is what's going to happen in pop culture on that end? Like what yeah. popular music would fit that? Um, Cause even, even during the Trump era, you know, when we had so many like, you know, uh, big actors and celebrities being like, fuck Trump or whatever, mostly the music industry pretty much completely stayed out. Pretty of much it. stayed out of it. And it's like, even like hip hop, which is sort of like the last bastion for that kind of political commentary and pop culture has gotten, you know, further and further away from that side of it. Like, um, even like Kendrick Lamar's last album is like maybe his least political. Um, I guess it depends on how you look at it, but you know, it's, it's, I, I, I wonder, I do, because I feel like these days so much of pop music is more about escapism, um, Mm -hmm. than like reflecting on the culture at large and the closest things to like political commentary we've gotten in, uh, 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 pop culture have been what that that Taylor Swift song that was so bad that I can't remember the name. Oh, of. God, yeah. You need to calm down. I confused. It. Yeah, you need to calm down. I confused it with another bad Taylor Swift song when we were talking about this earlier called "Me," which is even worse than that. But they're both bad, both from the same period. Amazingly, she came out with um, "Folklore" after that, which is a, a pretty good album. Oh yeah, not a commentary on Taylor Swift as a songwriter who I think wrote has written good songs, but that's just not one of them. And I think it's a very bad version of being politically outspoken at a very political time. Um, yeah. I think, um, I think a lot of my cynicism about this though, even goes, goes specifically back to what you were talking about, which is around the Iraq war when people said, Oh, now this great protest music is coming out. And universally the protest music was limp and did nothing and was pretty bad, you know, like there was, and there was very little of it to begin with. There was very little of it, but you had like rock against Bush, which is a bad album. You had, I guess Madonna's American life, which is not a good song and isn't actually political. You had Neil Young's couple of protests. Oh, living albums. with, living with war. I, I living yeah, with I war, which that. has the dumbest lyrics of the, his career. My, my, my hometown plays a, a part in the story of that album, but really, I won't. I won't. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's like American Idiot, I guess, is the only one of those that's like had any lasting cultural impact. And only the song American Idiot really is about anything. And even that's not about a whole lot. Like, it's just that era. It felt like a lot of people were like, we're making a statement against the government. And they but they weren't really doing anything. And it made me feel very dispirited with the idea yeah, and I think I feel like that happened again with Trump for me. A lot of the the you know mainstream anti-Trump commentary felt very just like feckless and ineffective, and if 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 nothing, just feeding the beast. Um, but it, I don't know. I I just feel like you know yesterday when that decision hit, I just felt like 
you know, the worst that everyone was, the thing that everyone was afraid was going to happen has happened. Like the worst has happened now. I mean, I mean, it will, it will absolutely get worse, but yeah, I mean, the thing everybody was saying, no, things aren't going to get this bad. Yeah. Absolutely. Like it's happened now. So how do people respond to that? And at some point it's like, what, what is there, you know, on the horizon, even when we're talking about like mains in mainstream, like, you know, liberal, whatever, spaces like there's no there's no narrative (laughs) there to how to handle that and it makes me want and there's just this general feeling that people in power and institutions have been completely ineffective and useless and if if anything completely hostile to to that um so it, it does make me wonder if it's if if something is going to change in that space because it just feels like it kind of has to or i i don't i don't know uh, um, it's just something that I've been thinking about. It's like, what is there, you know, <laughs> what is there coming up? You know, like what is there to be, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Just something to think about, I guess. No, no, I would agree. I mean, I, I think, I think it's, I think there's also a sense with like Vietnam or the Iraq war that like, this will create a great, period in music because this thing is going to end and while it's happening we're going to protest it um, with all of these great sounds and music and it's going to create change and this thing is going to end whereas where I feel like we're at now is just a extended collapse <laughs> um, which will you know end when the government ends uh, and, yeah. and so I feel like well, you can think- <laughs> whatever we see is actually pro- is the things people are going to be responding to are probably going to get worse and worse and I feel like I wonder what I mean, kind of music will spring out of that. I mean, I think of I think of it as a growing sentiment towards like elites and elite institutions, basically. Right. I mean, that's how I've been thinking about it because that's like kind of embodies everything, and it kind of makes me, you know, the thing that gives me pause about that kind of idea or space developing is everything seems to have developed around this ecosystem of the internet in the last 10 years or whatever in a specific kind of cultural space where things occupy, I don't know, specific roles and music and music is this kind of escapism. Even when we're talking about, I mean, something like machine girl is more punk and there is political aspects to it, but it's very abstracted. What I'd love to see is like a return to like the early, like folk and country music. That's heavily leftist. Just yeah. outspoken, heavily leftist. No, no, but no couching that shit in metaphor. <laughs> like, yeah, but if we're talking about something like I don't know, hyper pop, the term that's been overused and run into the ground, as well as like vaporwave and stuff like that. A lot of those electronic, like net label stuff. A lot of that really is escapism. Like, uh, that is kind of like the interest in that music, and it, it, it feels like maybe not fully suited for the. The moment, and and also, I think the the other thing that I worry about that I think is doing more active harm than anything else, and a lot of people in the music, especially like established music industry, have not been hard enough on, is all the NFT shit. Like, oh yeah, seeing, I'm I'm sorry, like to you know call them out, but seeing Holly Herndon and um, Matt Dryhurst, people who were like got on, you know, the were progressive anti Spotify thing, just going hard into NFT stuff. It's like this is not the answer. You're wrong and you're doing active harm to the space by selling this. And this idea, it's just all it is is like, you know, at least during the indie era, you know, you could the thing that you were producing for your fans or whatever, you know, like the two thousands is what I'm talking about. At least during that era, like 
you know, there's this idea that you're at least accountable to your fans and your fan base. Like that's the, that's the kind of thing that you're, you know, you're making music to reach people in some way. And, you know, maybe there are all these weird arcane ecosystems that you have to navigate in terms of like, you know, getting your music noticed and continuing to be relevant and all that kind of stuff. And I totally understand that there are a lot of gatekeepers and all that kind of stuff, but just the idea, like that is something that really means something when you're talking about music, that's something that people want to know. They want to feel like something is coming from a place that cares about them. And the NFT stuff is like deliberately something that does not care about you unless you have lots of money. It's that's also the whole point. It's also in trying to, uh, solve the problems of the current institution. It is simply recreating that institution in an even in, more obtuse yeah. way. Like it's just and not. an even more ab- obtuse, even more accelerated, worse way. And I don't think that there's anything. And I say this as somebody who has been like on the internet and has been part of scenes and things that are largely not known about or right. marginalized or whatever, and has been around technology, but being around the video game space, there's nothing interesting or fundamentally like NFTs are anti-democratic. <laughs> like they're oh, anti yeah. like NFTs are not terribly different or like, well, the one way they're different from that one Wu Tang album that Martin Shkreli bought is that there's no actual scarcity to it. And they're way more expensive and worse for the world. <laughs> But conceptually, it's, not, it's fairly similar. You're not doing it to improve the landscape. You're doing it with this theoretical idea that it's something that could be a sustainable thing, which is like, of course, somebody who's in a position of power to where they're trying to be the first in this space is going to push that on you. So I, you 100% should not trust Holly Herndon or Matt Dryhurst when they're pushing this stuff. I'm sorry, because I like, I felt really bad about that because they both follow me on Twitter and like I bought her album and I like her music, but it's doing active harm to the space and like people haven't called it out because those artists like have respect but i am basically no one and i'm saying <laughs> that you should not fucking listen to those people i'm saying they're wrong i'm saying I, I i i am with you on that i mean it is beyond being bad for the environment i think trying to sell this to people is directly exploitative this is a a bigger fool scheme you're you are trying to trick people whether you're aware of it or not so wherever like a countercultural thing, if it exists, which according to Ted, however you pronounce his name, Joya, Joya, <laughs> according to Ted Joya, we don't live in a uh, we don't live in a society with counterculture. I think some of those people are not are really not aware of like some of these online, you know, kind of uh, label spaces that exist that are not visible to them. Um, when people say things like that, I don't think that they're fully aware, but there is a sense of like that anything that even a lot of that stuff, the sensibility of it is primarily escapist. A lot of isn't, isn't necessarily politically motivated. And, um, there is this kind of idea of like, like everyone's kind of marginalized, but nothing or not everyone, but like most people, there's a lot of marginal voices, but uh, there's no kind of mechanism to um, to that feels like it's going to get stuff up. But I don't know. Things it just feels like we might be uh, in line for things to change just because just the, the way things are right now, like the, 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 the way that a lot of what what was before feels like it's crumbling in so many different ways. I mean, but I, I don't know. I would agree. I think I think that we're already seeing art 
on the fringes or in the uh, indie scene getting more and more political, like if we're looking away from like major outlets. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, even regardless of people <laughs> in video saying games, we, we have in video games world, which again, I using it as an example, maybe I'm using it as a crutch. We have stuff like fucking cruelty squad, which definitely feels pretty countercultural to me, but Oh, it absolutely does. And I think when people say we're not a counterculture, what they really mean is that the counterculture is, this sounds like an oxymoron, it's no longer monocultural. You can't point to mm -hmm. it as one mass like you could with like a Generation X in the 90s or hippies in the 60s. Yeah. It no longer feels like one mass, but is in fact many smaller communities who probably share some values, you know, you know queerness, leftism, like, but are nonetheless fairly different approaches. And it just looks different to them, and so they can't use the same terms. But I think it has a similar effect. And I think especially people are getting more and more galvanized every day um, as this sort of liberal tactics of complacency are continuously proven as myths. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and especially as the younger generation who started off fucked get more and more fucked, um, I think we're only going to see an angrier and more politically active artistic scene. I just think, I think I'm going, I think of it currently as different because I don't see it as being a phase or a response to any one thing as much as this entire cultural collapse. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And as I get older, like I'm in my mid thirties, mm -hmm. but as I like get older, the older I get, the more that it feels completely irresponsible and horrible to be like if you're in your 40s or or older you know the older i get <laughs> sorry i keep repeating this. the older i get the more it feels just completely irresponsible and fucked up to be like oh we're all fucked yeah because because it, it, you're just seeding this idea that it's going to be even worse for someone below you someone who's coming in below you who's younger who has and like you know like at the end of the day, people are still having kids. There's younger people. And if you're not like interested in making lives better for people, then it's just somebody who's, you're going to be the, <laughs> what the boomers are to you, you're going to be to them. Absolutely. You know? You're just a more nihilistic virgin. It's just like, it's okay to say things, say like everything's pretty fucked right now, but not to use that as an excuse for inaction, not to use yeah. that as a, as a reason to like, you know, fall into ironic detachment or escapism because, yeah, that's that's you giving up on people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, to end with this, <laughs> and that uh, and that is our <laughs> to, it, it, to end with ironic detachment, right? Which is like most of our podcast. Absolutely, it is in a way though. It is also an extended critique of ironic detachment. Yeah. Well, speaking of that meta commentary on ironic detachment and the values of that, um, we do have a email and you should definitely email us thoughts, especially like in, in light of this episode. Hopefully some people who listen to this have some interesting thoughts about this. Um, there's our email is kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to keep flogging the email and I guess I should also say that you should rate and review us on Apple Podcasts because that's what people with podcasts say. Yes. Please, um, please. But before we begin, I have a friend who is a uh, my friend uh, and online friend Andrew Toops, who is a big Shins fan. I sent him our Shins episode, and he has some thoughts, some detailed thoughts to share. So I'm going to read them to you um, as our as our closing thing. 
Um, and we can talk about it a little bit if you want to as well. But no, I'm excited um, for commentary. Okay. He says, my story with the shins is that I bought the album after it was all hyped up because like you, I heard Know Your Onion and thought it was so good. And the rest of the album kind of disappointed me aside from like Girl Inform Me and a few other more power poppy songs. I ended up liking Shoots Too Narrow a lot more. And again, like you first heard the song St. Simon, which I still think is the highlight. But strangely, as the years went on, I'd revisit O Inverted World from time to time and it quietly grew on me. I think I needed enough time for it to be detached from the nauseating hype train and cringy Zach Braff associations in my mind. Around 2013 or so, I kind of had to begrudgingly accept that it was one of my favorite albums simply by virtue of how I felt I kept feeling compelled to revisit it. Also, I don't know if you've ever listened to Wincing the Night Away, which is the third Shins album. Mm Uh, but the Smiths' influence is loudly obvious there. And, like, I say this as someone who actually likes the Smiths, it's easily what drags the entire thing down because it's such an awkward fit for his voice and songwriting. But I agree with your analysis of Mercer's lyrics being basically a sort of humorless take on Morrissey. But weirdly, that's what I like about their first album because it creates a kind of precious, unintentional comedy that I find very endearing. It opens up with a line, I think I'll go home and mull this over, which is like such a polar opposite from the kind of dramatic mission statements you're used to hearing albums kick off with. And the whole album is basically about the trials of his introversion. So it it absolutely is the mission statement here too. These days, I honestly fully embrace the cliched narrative that success ruined them, especially so because they were very early in the vanguard of that loathsome indie pop to car commercial pipeline you all discussed. And I think by the time you get to their second album, Mercer is way more self-aware of these things as a result. Um, St. Simon feels like it's his way of acknowledging this. And there's this sense of self-detachment that kills the authenticity of it for me. Because I kind of prefer his more awkward, overly precious lyrical style for all of its faults. And the production is such a mess. The snare drum sounds like a can of Pringles. The guitars all have this weird kind of phasey messiness to them. And it sounds like the band is playing in a cave. But somehow all of these loafy, awkward sounds coalesce into this perfectly immaculate vibe. It just drips with this almost supernatural sense of nostalgia. Normally all these production issues would bother me too much to get into it. But honestly, I think of all their subsequent records um, are profoundly boring to listen to in comparison, especially Shoots Too Narrow. And now that I think about it, it has a similar blandness that hampers many otherwise great Built to Spill albums for me. Wow, we've mentioned Built to Spill so many times already. <laughs> Maybe I just don't like how Phil Eck makes records or something. And he also made a meme that I can show you. It's just like, <laughs> here, I'll, I'll share it with you. On um, It's James Mercer holding a, um, a microphone, and it says... Uh, that face when it's way beyond <laughs> face when it's way beyond your remote concern to be condescending. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I think he just thought it was a very funny line. No, it's um, great. We should, we should post that somewhere. Um, and also he says also Saturn returns is an astrology thing. LOL. Okay. Sorry. Bye. It is an astrology thing, but it's after you turn. It's like when you turn 30. <laughs> Um, oh, and he sent me a, 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 a thread on the gear sluts about the recording of O Inverted World um, that talks about some of that. We, we already went over it, mm-hmm. but it's like more in-depth. I, I, I think that's, that's some really good insight there. And I, it makes sense that O Inverted World is the kind of 
album that would take a, a period of time and a lot of listens to really like appreciate because it's it is a very naughty sort of song structure and vibe well it's it's funny because like you know after we did the episode talking to some people you know who had listened to the podcast most people that i knew all said that they knew the shins probably the least of any of the artists that we had talked about <laughs> yeah up to that point so i i thought it was just interesting like uh you know, to have someone's perspective who I know was like a big Shins fan. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's great. And I think that's a lot of really cool points. So thank you for the message. So, yeah. So if you want to send cool letters like our friend Andrew Toops did, uh, please email us at kitchforkpodcast at gmail.com. Um, I suppose you could also like message one of us too, but I prefer to, if you do it that way. Yes, please. Uh, to email. Um Anything else we want to say before our next step? I guess um, we tentatively... Do you want to say what we're tentatively planning on doing for the next episode? Yeah, it's Liz Fair, right? Yes. Yeah, we're going to do, uh, do an ep on the self-titled Liz Fair album uh, from 2003, much maligned by the indie scene at the time. Um, and I think... And I'll, I'll cut this out if it's not going to happen, but I think we're going to have special guest... Uh, Audrey Whitesides uh, of the band uh, Speedy Ortiz and Mal Bloom. That would be great to have guests. I definitely, I have uh, potentially want to invite one or two people on, but I just haven't found the right place. So I'm very much looking forward to that, whatever the result is. I think it'll be interesting. Um, totally. Uh, yeah, that's, that's Kitchfork episode six in the can. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a fun, creative thing to say because uh, I guess what we talked about was a little more depressing this episode. It was very depressing. But until next time, I've been Max Cohen. <laughs> I've been Liz Ryerson. Uh, and every you know, be everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> Perfect. Not. <laughs> Psych.